Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. 20 years ago, Lionsgate released House of a Thousand Corpses, a movie that had been dropped by another studio, but which Lionsgate turned into a horror classic, while also launching the filmmaking career of its writer-director, Rob Zombie. In the two decades since, Zombie has gone on to become, for my money, one of the most interesting horror directors of his generation, with movies like The Lords of Salem, Three from Hell, two brilliant and idiosyncratic reinventions of Michael Myers, and his masterpiece, The Devil's Rejects. Corpses is what started it all, though, and for its anniversary, Lionsgate is releasing a terrific new Blu-ray box set, as well as a limited edition steelbook, both of which are loaded with never-before-seen interviews and special features. There's also a new digital edition on VOD that comes with a freshly recorded audio commentary by Zombie. On the occasion of these releases, I sat down with Zombie to talk about Corpses and what he felt he got right and what he learned from, and I think it's a great, honest conversation about the struggles one can go through to define oneself as a filmmaker. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we talk specifically about House of a Thousand Corpses, I wanted to ask a little bit about what the state and climate of horror was at the time that you made this movie. Um, What kinds of horror movies were being made and were people going to and how did you see yourself fitting into that? Was this still like the sort of post-Scream urban legend era? Yes, it was. It was sort of like, it was that time frame where the bad people and the monsters were irrelevant. Like every one sheet was just like the, the beautiful stars in descending order, you know, by the hierarchy of how famous they were. And they were pulling people off of, you know, like whatever, Dawson's Creek and all these things. And everybody was beautiful. And, um, and Universal wasn't making horror movies at all that I can remember. They were sort of not even, you know, they were making like Flintstones movies and stuff at that point. It wasn't really their thing. So, um, yeah, I I didn't do it as a reaction to that stuff, even though I didn't like that stuff. I just did it as the stuff that I like, you know, and I always liked either 30s horror, you know, the James Whale stuff, or I like total the hardcore 70s stuff, the Wes Craven, Toby Hooper stuff, the, you know, Chainsaw, Hills Have Eyes, whatever. So it was sort of like those two worlds colliding for me of what I was trying to do. So you mentioned Universal and, you know, obviously that whole relationship famously went bad at the end. But how yeah. did you, how did you get even get started doing the movie there? It seems like sort of a strange studio movie, again, for a place that was making, like you say, Flintstones movies and stuff like that. It happened very simply. It was very weird. Like I went uh, a friend of mine at the time, this guy Oseri, who was a big manager. He managed right now he manages Madonna. And a bunch of other people. He, I mean, and he had worked for he you know, ran Maverick Records at the time. And I don't know if he was starting to get into movies or whatnot. He was just a friend I'd known. And he was like, Oh, what do you we went out to lunch? And he, I mentioned making movies. And he was like, Oh, okay. I could think he really liked to make things happen. He's like, I'm gonna set you up in a meeting at Universal with my friend Kevin Misher, get you in the room, and whatever happens, happens. So I, he never was really involved after that. I just went to Universal, met with Kevin Misher, who at that time I think was working on Scorpion King with, uh, I don't know, whoever's in Scorpion King, I never saw it. I I was in the room and he thought I was going to pitch him a movie. I didn't have a movie to pitch because it was, that was me just not knowing, knowing why I'm there sort of, but not really knowing why I'm there. So I sort of bullshitted this idea for House of a Thousand Corpses. I knew I had that title because I thought the title sounded cool. And I sort of, I can't even imagine he would have greenlit this based on whatever nonsense I must have said in that room but he did it just moved quick i don't know i guess i had the right people making the right phone calls without even realizing it well so at this point you had directed music videos but this was your feature directorial debut so 
what were the things that kind of carried over from music videos and what were the skills that you quickly learned maybe you needed that you didn't have in order to tell a feature length story? Well, the thing that the good part about music videos was I knew how to deliver a product in the sense that like, you know, I had been hired to make videos for other people before. I had made an Aussie video um, around that time. So when, you know, Sharon Osbourne gives you $300,000 to make a video, they expect a completely perfect finished video at the end of that check. So it wasn't like, whereas sometimes I could think like, well, if you're in film school and you worked on your short film for 18 months, no one cares if your feelings are in it. They go, it was supposed to be here today. It's not here today. We're suing you. You know, so that was the good part about music videos, having to deliver things on time and budget. The bad part was, is that music videos for me, they're just like visual eye candy. So it doesn't really, te- it, it can, but it didn't really, you know, the skill of setting a cohesive tone and telling a cohesive story does not exist in that. So um, that's where the, the music video razzmatazz I think got in the way. In fact, when I started the movie, I had carried over a lot of my crew from music videos, my cinematographer, my gaffer, all these people. And as sad as it was, I made a lot of videos with them. I fired everyone because none of them were up to the challenge of what it was going to take to deliver this thing on time, on budget and and acceptable. That was not easy, but it had to be done because, you know, it's it's all about the movie. It's not about someone's feelings. And that's why when I made Devil's Rejects, I, I, my mindset was different. I could understand the tone and what it took to make his the tone that carries through. And it was a completely different scenario. In fact, I basically, do you remember that episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza decides to do everything the opposite of what he would normally do? That was the motto I used on Devil's Rejects. I'm going to Costanza this movie. Whatever my natural instinct would be, I'm going to do the opposite. If I want to light it psychedelic, I'm going to make it drab and desaturated. And I did that all through the whole movie. I would go against what the natural instinct I had developed for music videos. Well, I remember seeing Devil's Rejects the first time and being really stunned by just how clear it was and how, I mean, I I can see exactly what you're saying because I love House of a Thousand Corpses, but House of a Thousand Corpses feels like a movie. It's a little bit of like a, you know, kitchen sink movie. It feels like a first movie where there's kind of a lot of enthusiasm and abundance of things. But then Devil's Rejects just was so precise. And I remember really, I remember, I remember feeling like from the freeze frame that started the opening credits in that movie, I sat back and I was like, okay, this guy really knows what he's doing. Like I'm in, I'm in safe hands with this director. First movie is definitely like a guy who's like, so worried the audience is going to get bored that you're like, you like that magic trick? What about this thing? Like constantly just trying to keep it Whereas a rejects, I go, no, a scene can live. You can drag it. In fact, dragging it out is what will make it work and stuff. So it was, yeah, it was really like, a, even my first idea at the time, he had done corpses and he did rejects. And he was like, what the fuck happened since the last movie? And I go, I figured out how to do this, you know? Yeah. And yet I think there's an exuberance to House of a Thousand Corpses that sort of provides its own pleasures. And I was, you know, I was kind of surprised. Now I'm not surprised hearing you talk, but I was surprised at one point hearing you say that, House of a Thousand Corpses initially wasn't really seen as a black comedy. It was more just sort of a straight horror film. And I, because I think the comedy is such a big part yeah, of it. I think that's why for a lot of years, I was so dissatisfied with it because you go in with an idea of what you're going to do, but your idea and your skill set don't match. So the movie started where maybe it should have been more, you could have used the same script, but it just could have been a more serious tone. It would have been more like a sick, weird movie, but it got kind of a goofy tone. And after a certain point, 
it, the movie just kind of dictates itself. Like, oh, this is that, and it's going to go like this. And and now when I watch it, I can appreciate it because I would never make that movie now. That's only how you make something when you really kind of don't know what you're doing. And sometimes in that, great things come. I remember that with music too. Like, I don't really know how to write a song. So you do this crazy shit that you would never do now because you know too much to be that naive and primitive with what you're doing. I mean, I had just watched Corpses for the first time in like 20 years, like last week. And there is stuff where I'm like, ah, I wouldn't have chopped that up so much. I wouldn't have done that with the color. It doesn't need that. That's just me being stupid. But there are large chunks where I go, okay, that that's normal. I mean, I would have. The one thing I did do that I didn't like about it, I thought the movie looked too slick because I shot it on 35. So when I did rejects, I shot it on 16 and blew up the negative to 35 because that was the main thing that aggravated me. It looked too good for what I was thinking in my head. That's interesting because I, I actually, that's one of the things I liked about it is I like that it has the slick look because it feels so kind of counterintuitive to that kind of movie, you know, because the movie, a lot of, in a lot of ways, subject yeah. matter wise, it feels like an early, you know, Toby Hooper or something like that. And I kind of like the slick, colorful feeling. And I feel like I read somewhere that at one point, you know, you were mentioning firing your music video crew, but then you also went through a bunch of cinematographers on this, including like Doug Milsom, who's right, who's one of the sort of, yeah worked with like Kubrick and Spielberg and people like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, uh, the original video guy I had to get rid of, which is, is was a bummer, but had to do it. And then uh, this other guy, Tom Richmond came in and shot, you know, 90% of the movie. And Doug Milsom came in when we did, we did a couple weeks. I think it's a couple weeks. I don't even remember anymore of wasn't really reshoots. It was additional photography. It was that whole crazy Dr. Satan ending is what I shot. And um, I was very excited to work with Doug Milsom because, um, you know, Full Metal Jacket and all these things. But the thing I didn't factor into it was, um, I don't have 500 days to accomplish this. Like he might be used to. You know? <laughs> so all day long was me just going like, what the fuck is taking so fucking long? We got three shots done today. You know, I needed 70, you know. So that was, uh, that, that was uh, yeah, that was a rough relationship. Well, shifting gears to, you know, working with the actors. I love the cast in this movie. And your movies always have really interesting cast because I feel like you're not, you know, some movies you go to see and you feel like there's this kind of list of people that everyone's pulling from and your movies, it always feels like, that, no, these are the people who you really like, whether they happen to be popular, not popular, were popular and now aren't whatever. And uh, first of all, before you directed this movie, did you have any, a lot of experience working with actors or how did you, how did you kind of learn how to talk with actors? I didn't have any experience working with actors. I think what the one thing I've noticed with actors or in my experience, anyway, I can't speak about else, is that so many of these actors have been forgotten and they're not appreciated. And even like Karen Black, who was, you know, a big star, but now she gets thrown away because she's, I don't even know how old she was at the time, 40 when I worked with her, you know, it's like <laughs> so old. Um, <laughs> and they really respond to the fact that you know who they are and you know all about their career every obscure ridiculous thing they ever did you've seen it and you love it i remember one time getting on the phone with howard hessman because i really wanted him to be in halloween too and i could tell he didn't want to do it and he didn't even want to talk to me and then when i got on the phone and started talking about this movie he made with chris christopherson called cisco pike he's like what no one's talking to me about that movie in fucking 40 years you know i'm in you know and i think that makes a big difference and i've noticed that all the way through 
that doesn't mean that you know how to work with them, but then it's like you, you develop a rapport. And also they know they're there because you want them there. So if they're Michael J. Pollard and they're weird, which he was, that's why you want him. I didn't cast him so that he could play like the dashing lead. I want the weird, you know, guy that was in Bonnie and Clyde in every other movie. Same with Karen Black. She's kooky and she sometimes seemed like she was nuts, but that's what I wanted. You know, so they I think they like that. Then even I remember Udo Kier telling me, he goes, Rob, you are the only director who understands me. You don't try to control me. You just let me be crazy. And I love it. You know, and um, uh, yeah, that's why I cast you, Budo, because you're nuts. <laughs> and that's kind of the same. That still do that. That's how I handle everything. Well, is that maybe where some of the black comedy aspect kind of came into the movie is just from letting these actors be who they were and do what they wanted to do and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I should have realized. I mean, Michael J. Parlight, I always thought was hilarious. Sid Haig, I didn't know if he was funny. Like that was one where I had an idea of how I thought he would be from watching him in things. But, you know, he never really, I thought, ever got to do enough in movies. He'd be really interesting, but he's sort of the thug in the background. But he was just like I thought he would be, kind of loud and boisterous and ridiculous. So, yeah, and it, it just kind of went that way. And Karen is, I mean, Karen can do anything, but, you know, she just probably picked up on the tone. And, yeah, and the whole movie just sort of took on this, like, uh, I don't know, it's what I always thought it would seem like uh, if you threw Rocky Horror Picture Show and Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a blender, and you got that's what would come out the kind of both vibes at the same time well and aside from all those great character actors like sid haig and pollard and people like that then you also had really good instincts for a few new actors i mean you've got rain wilson and walton goggins i mean was had rain wilson done the office yet or anything or was he just a complete unknown at that point complete unknown i didn't know who he was he had his credits were like a lot of theater um, he came in and he was interested. And, and when I actually found some of the casting tapes and a lot of people that are now somebody had come in that were interesting, but Rain stood out to me. Actually, people that were kind of somebody at the time came in. He just stood out to me. Same with Walton Goggins. That's that's why um, I've said this a lot, but for actors that feel discouraged, if you're good, you stand out. You know, there may be 200 people at the casting call, but there's not 200 good people at that casting call. There's maybe four. You know, because even when I'm working with the casting director, she'll just be like, oh, yeah, the whole day was a waste. Everyone sucked. So good people stand out quickly, at least to me, if that's what you're looking for. I mean, I was looking for unconventional people, you know, because, you know, so that helped, too. And I remember the one person I tried to cast that it didn't happen and I met with him was I really wanted to cast Frank Gorshin as grandpa. Oh, that would have been great. And I met with him. But he was so adamant he had to be Captain Spaulding, and I had already cast it. And I remember I took Bill Mosley with me to the meeting for some reason. And yeah, it was it was a really kind of contentious meeting. He was I thought he was gonna strong arm us into giving him the other role, but it didn't work. I'm curious as a director how you work, and maybe it's changed since this movie. I don't know if you did it the same way in corpses as you did in your later films, but just in terms of the blocking and planning your shots, you know, are, are you the kind of director who comes in with you know, a kind of strict storyboarded plan, or is it more about seeing what the actors do on the day and kind of responding to them and building it around that? Or is it kind of a combination? I don't storyboard anything. I mean, I have, I have storyboards for sequences. Some mostly like on this movie, because Universal had to see them, even though I didn't follow them. I didn't even have them on set with me, but they wanted to know what's happening. But um, and for me, until I'm on the set with the actors in their wardrobe and it's lit, 
It just doesn't exist. I mean, I have ideas of how I want to shoot it. And especially if I'm working with the cinematographers that I've worked with a lot, they know what I'm, they know how I'm going to vibe it out. But I just, I don't like being caught up in, I was more caught up in it on the first movie where I thought like, okay, the camera's here. And the like, I remember the very first shot of corpses. It was just a nothing shot of the police driving up in front of Captain Spaulding's. And I'm like, I don't know. Is it good? Should I do five takes? Should I do no take? Like, you just don't know yet. And that was the biggest problem I had when editing the movie. I'm like, I didn't move the camera enough. I didn't get enough coverage. You know, and then you learn these things that you later you go, once I get into editing, I'm fucked. So I better, you know, I better do this. So I went on like Devil's Rejects. I was the exact opposite. I was just trying to get every drain, every ounce of life out of every scene in every possible way. Rather than going, oh, here's what we're because that, that that always bothers me sometimes when I'm watching a movie and I go, this just seems like a TV show. Actually, it seems like a TV show they shot live in front of the studio audience. The coverage is so generic and feels so flat. Why would you do this? I'm not, you know, it feels like this has been done a million times. I know there's, you know, some coverage that's sort of required so you can tell a cohesive story. But in general, yeah, no, I, I like to just see what's going to happen because you just can never tell how people are going to move or act or be and actor actors are a squirrely bunch sometimes you know you got to vibe them out because some of them will do anything you want and some of them clearly you're like okay whatever i want that guy to do i gotta make it think it was his idea and he's doing exactly what he fucking wants or he's going to do the exact opposite of everything i say all day long just to try to prove a point to somebody so you got you kind of become this weird uh yeah it's like this mind manipulation all day long to get what you want which is yeah. fun and draining <laughs> So where did the idea come from for something like that shot in the movie where it's the, the killing of a cop, I think, and like the camera pulls back and you hold for what seems like in it's like an interminable amount of time, which yeah. I think is great when the shot finally comes, it really jolts you back. Yeah, that was later in the that was deeper into the shoot. By that point, like I do learn things quickly. So when I watched the earlier scenes, it's like, oh, but you, you know, I'm like, okay, okay. So by the time I got to that, my brain was starting to think more outside the box on how to cover things and what to do with things. And that was probably the most, um, the best example of that. That was also the, the funniest thing. That was the, I think the main reason that Universal hated the movie. They hated that shot and they thought it had to come out. And I was like, this is the best thing in the whole movie in my mind, you know? So I don't know. It's just sometimes you, Sometimes you have a wacky idea in advance and it actually works. And that was one of them. Well, so what was it that, I mean, you say that, that shot, but when did you get a sense that the relationship with Universal was turning bad? The second they watched the movie, <laughs> we had a test screening out in Pomona. You know, the, the chairman of Universal was there with other people that work for her. I don't know who they were. And after the screening, which I thought went, you know, reasonably well, you know, we weren't finished editing. We weren't finished, but enough. And uh, she was just, all she said to me was like, come to my office tomorrow. We have to talk. And then she just left. The next day I went to her office and they basically was like, this movie is unreleasable for Universal. We can't release this. I don't see how we could possibly re-edit it to make it releasable. And that's that. That's really crazy. So did they, at that point, say to you, you know, you can take this and shop it around elsewhere? Or did you have to kind of wrest it away from them in some way? I could take it and shop it around because they wanted their money back. Because they had invested, I don't know what they had invested exactly, but I think the starting price they wanted back for that movie was $14 million. So we're shopping around trying to sell it for $14 million. Now, that's never going to happen because it's not 
starring anyone who's a marquee name or that's anyone that's like, you know, it's not starring Jean-Claude Van Damme where they, we can sell this all around the world. You know, it was fucked up weird movie. So what happened was um, after everyone started saying no, I realized my only hope is to go back to them and keep devaluing the movie in their eyes and getting the price down. So it would go from, okay, well, just get 10, just get seven, just get six. You know, like it kept going, like eventually I get them to a price that was sellable. And eventually I did. And then I bought the movie and then I sold it to Lionsgate, who had a, originally said no, but somebody different had seen the movie. I don't, it might have been Peter Block, who was at Lionsgate at the time, who was more the genre guy. And he said yes. And they bought it. And that was that. So you shot the movie, I think, somewhere around 2000 and it came out around 2003. So What's going on during all that time? Are you still in in those years? Are you still tinkering with the movie? Are you still editing it? Is it just sitting somewhere while you're trying to find a distributor? Yeah, we started shooting it May May of 2000, and it was finally hit theaters April 11th of 2003. So yeah, it was almost three years of downtime. When I was on my second editor, because Universal fired my first editor because she spoke up in a meeting and seemed like that pissed everybody off, even though she didn't say anything bad very weird. There's a lot of politics and bullshit that goes on. It's just so ugly. So they hired this other guy. His name was Robert Lambert. And he was like a big editor. He had just done Three Kings and Mission to Mars and all these big, big films. Like He's going to come in and save the movie. But I think they also thought he was going to come in and be the corporate guy on the inside to control me. Except he comes in and he's the exact opposite. I think he's like this old hippie guy now, you know, but he's got short hair now. But his attitude was like, hey, man, I don't work for the man. I work for you. Fuck those suits. <laughs> so he's on my side through the whole process. But his advice was once we got dumped, actually, he had to leave the project at that point. His son took over and kept editing. He said, never stop working on the movie. Don't put it on a shelf. Keep working on it, even if it's tiny stuff, because once it just sits, it just dies. So I never stopped working on it. Sometimes I would gather members of the cast and I would go out and shoot additional scenes. There's all kinds of stuff like that throughout the movie. That's why there's so many different like um, film looks because that's when I would go back out and shoot something different, something new. And it just eventually became part of the look of the movie, but it was out of the necessity. And I just kept doing that almost. I never stopped doing that actually until Lionsgate put it out. So I just, for three years, kept doing that. And, you know, over the years, it's become, you know, pretty popular cult classic. And I feel like there are so many, you know, as a, as a consumer of DVDs and Blu-rays and things, you know, I feel like they're always putting out new editions of it that I have to buy. Yeah. So it's obviously uh, caught on, but what was the response like to it when it first came out theatrically? Did it have a big audience or was it something that took a while to grow? It did okay theatrically because it was a cheap film. Lionsgate bought it cheap and it did okay. I mean, they made their money back fast enough that they immediately greenlit the sequel. Um, I don't know what the response was like in theaters. I never went and watched it with an audience. But as far as critics, everybody hated it, like hated it. I, I don't even think I ever saw a review that was better than like F minus or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, people hated it. And that's why it's funny now that like when I see a, a newer review for it, that people like it so much and that at 20 years later, it's, you know, it sells more DVDs or action figures or T-shirts than ever. But that, I guess that's it was like truly a cult movie. I mean, I think some people sometimes people try to make a cult movie. They think they're going to concoct one. And you can't because it's unpredictable. I tried to make a movie. The district, everything about it turned into a total disaster. And somehow an audience found it and they love it. None of it was on purpose. 
it was, you know, the movie seemed doomed to just be forgotten and the fans picked it up and ran with it and still do. I mean, it's crazy. And I remember at the time, I forget which merch company it was that was making some Captain Spaulding stuff like masks and costumes. They go, we haven't had a character. They said, we haven't had a character this popular since like Freddy Krueger selling stuff that there just hadn't been a horror character like Freddy Krueger, Chucky, like the 80s stuff. So, yeah, it just people just caught on and went with it. Yeah, I mean, it's fu- it's funny how obsessed people get thinking about opening weekends and stuff, because, you know, I was I was reading this biography of Fritz Lang and you go through and all these movies that we think of as these yeah. Fritz Lang classics that we love. It's like, you know, nobody was going to see him when they came out. They got mixed reviews. People were like, ah, Lang's lost it, you know, with this one, whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, these are movies that now we think of as some of the greatest movies ever made. You go back and read old reviews for anything. And you'd think like uh, The Shining was the worst movie ever made and Led Zeppelin are the worst band that ever lived. Like, it's just like everybody hates everything. And now it's worse than ever because I don't even see that the film critics are even for the most part these days qualified. Like back in the day, we go, okay, Gene Sisko, Roger Ebert, they did seem like complete film nerds, which, okay, maybe I didn't always agree with them. But now it just seems like any knucklehead who has a blog considers himself and you read the thing, you're like, this guy didn't even know what he's talking about. His film knowledge dates back to last Wednesday. He doesn't even like, oh, this is an obvious ripoff of this. I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're like, this is moronic, which is fine. I don't even care. But then, it, but then it's like, you know, there are makes life hard for unconventional movies. That's why you know you don't get a lot of them. Were you uh, pleasantly surprised when Devil's Rejects came out and Ebert and Roper gave it the great review they did? That was very shocking. That was, I remember I was in New York doing something and I I thought someone was kidding. Because I was so used to people just like shitting on the, the first movie that I just thought, well, I was probably going to hate this one too. But I remember when I finished, I mean, I was always rough on House of a Thousand Corpses myself, but I remember when I finished Devil's Rejects, the last day we edited it, I was with the editor. I go, I don't care what anyone, and I go, because he was, I go, Glenn, I don't care what anyone fucking says. Right now, we both know this movie's fucking good. So whatever happens tomorrow when people want to talk shit, remember that. Because it's really easy to get manipulated sometimes like people's opinion and you have to just go, nope, I know what I think. Cause you have to do that with your whole career because when you start out doing anything, unless you're some lucky person who comes out of the gate fully formed and awesome, the rest of us, you know, it's a long slog through shit <laughs> to where you want to be. Well, I guess the last thing I want to ask you about is, uh, you know, one of my favorite movies from last year was the Munsters and you returned to Universal, I mean, I'm assuming it's probably all different people now, but what was it like for you returning to the scene of the crime to do a movie for Universal again? It was really kind of funny because at first I was kind of excited about it because I thought it was kind of funny that, you know, 20 years later, this I was rehired by the studio that fired me. But then the kind of corporateness set in again, and it was kind of a bummer. I got to be I got to be honest. I wish I could be like, this is fucking awesome. But it's just I just don't, you know, just trying to make unconventional stuff in these. It was even more corporate. Because even with House of a Thousand Corpses, the, the executives I were working with that I was working with, they would come to the set. They knew the crazy shit we were doing. If they were fine, weren't fine with it, they didn't get in the way. They were cool. And they both went on to have good careers, really good careers and um, good for them. But now it just seems like everybody, the entire industry is just run by lawyers and everyone's just afraid of being sued. So much so that they wouldn't even let me call you know, Count Dracula, which is grandpa on the TV show, Count Dracula. They go, we, you can't call him Count Dracula. I go, but that's who he is. That's who he was on the show. That's the only thing he's been known as for 55 years. Well, you can't use it. 
I was like, why? Well, we might make a Dracula movie someday and we don't want it to get confused. So you're afraid that this character from the Munsters of which you own may one day possibly get confused with a movie of which you do not even have in development. Correct. And it was like that with everything, you know, because there's a character, Uncle Gilbert, which is the creature from the Black Lagoon. The fighting and the craziness that went on for us to use that character of which they own. And we would literally be talking to lawyers like, well, we have to get the rights. Well, you have the rights to it. It is a universal property. That's not good enough. I go, what the fuck? Like, and my lawyer, who is a big, big entertainment lawyer, would start sending things out of law books as about stuff. He goes, this is this whatever they call it, the statute or that. And he goes, I'm dealing with these junior lawyers. He goes, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're just so afraid of a lawsuit that they're just saying no to everything. And it was like that nonstop every day for years until by the end of it. One day I walked in and I joked it. I wasn't even sure if they'd let us call it the Munsters. I wasn't sure of anything after a while because we had to fight for every little thing. It was bizarre. That was like bizarro world. And it went on every single day for a couple of years. Being back at Universal was just as frustrating. <laughs> Well, if, if it's any consolation, I thought the finished movie was great. I, my my wife and I watch it all the time, and we love it. So I'm, oh, I'm thanks, man. Yeah, disappointing to hear that it went so badly for you. Well, I mean, what, the good part was we shot it in Budapest, so no one from the studio came there. So once we landed in Budapest, I go, I don't give a shit. We're doing whatever the fuck we want unless someone wants to get on a plane and come here and stop us. So we did. And um, that's why I think we're ultimately okay. <laughs> well, uh, this has been great. I've been a big admirer of yours for a long time. Well, thanks, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk with sure, me. Sure. I hope this new uh, release uh, introduces a whole new group of fans to uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, I love nothing better than when I see little tiny kids dressed as Captain Spaulding. It's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs>